Hello and welcome again to another episode of Don't Fuck With The Original with your host, I am Casper. And I am Becky Gremlin. And here to bring you all things spooky on Wednesday because... Wednesdays are for podcasts, guys. (laughs) So we know that you guys are super excited about this episode. We are super excited about this episode. Uh, All about Ted Bundy. And Ted Bundy is, like, trending on everything right now. We got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, just... Guys, we could have not picked a better podcast topic in the time frame that we picked it. I mean, it just, like, everything seemed to come into play with the anniversary of his execution, the Netflix documentary that was released, the movie that premiered at Sundance Film Festival last weekend with Zac Efron. It's just been, excuse me, it's been a crazy week, guys. It has been, like, hashtag Ted Bundy all week long. All week long, so. And we're, we hope you guys have at least maybe watched the tapes on Netflix. Those, they were very good. The whole, uh, documentary was fantastic. Um, if you don't really know a lot about Ted Bundy, it was a good insight. Excuse me. It was a good insight as far as to kind of his backstory a little bit, kind of, you know, more into his victims and things like that. I think it brought a good light to, learning more about Ted Bundy. We're going to kind of go into a little bit more as far as his backstory, because I feel like not a lot of people know a lot about his backstory. Yeah, the actual documentary on Netflix is called Confessions with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. And they were um, actually recorded in 1980, not long after his conviction. Um in 1979. So the tapes aren't actual confessions. What they were was a way of trying to get him confessed, but the reporter basically turned it around and said, if you were the killer, because at this time Ted was staunchly denying any of the murders, he basically posed it to him, if you were the killer, how would you commit these? And of course... Ted, being the narcissist that he is, took that and said, well, you know, obviously the killer is this, this, and this, and not to give the documentary away because I really want you guys to see it. Um, You know, he was essentially describing himself and essentially describing how he was in the process of the murders. And literally there was like this, this, this beast inside of him that he was having to feed with each murder, this insatiable thirst that just couldn't be quenched that he described. So, and he um, even said that too. He mentioned, you know, it'll be fixed with this one. And then that happened. And then no, not yet. It'll be fixed with this one. And then that happened. And then this one and that happened. It was just time after time after time. He thought he was going to be able to get it quenched and he just didn't. That, you know, maybe this murder will be the last one or this murder will be the last one. And, you know, there ultimately ended up being uh, roughly about 30 murders. And, uh, yeah, that's something that we'll get into, too, um, Mm -hmm. as far as how many murders and all that good stuff. Because we really, honestly, to this day, we still don't know. No. There is no conclusive number. No. So before we dive into into Ted... We wanted to make an announcement, a surprise announcement, that dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we have music 
Yes, guys, it's coming. Next week will be our first episode where we actually have music. And we were going to kind of give a little hint as far as to what it is. And all I'm going to say is that it is no secret that we have decided to go to Salem this year. Yes. And that's all I'm going to say. It's a big trip coming up for us this year, guys. It is. It's going to tie in. That's a solid, that's a solid clue too. So. But um, we're it's very excited. Yep, we are going to start next week with our with our podcast theme music, and we're very excited to um, share that with you guys because we both it, it's an artist that we both genuinely love. We have uh, both been she, actually Becky's been following him longer than I have. She introduced him to me, and the first song that she sent to me, I I fell in love with him. He is an amazing composer. So, next week, we will tell you who he is, and we will reveal our music. So, we're very excited about that. Yeah, we're, you know, we're all for supporting independent artists, and, and what we do is is similar. So, you know, this is an artist that, that is independent, and uh, we're just really happy that he's willing to work with us, and that we get to not only promote his music, and, and uh, hopefully garner him more of a following than what he has, but, you know, garner more of a following for us too. So we hope you guys enjoy it. We are super, super, super excited about it. Very excited. Yep. Very. All right. Well, I'm going to let Becky take a lot of the control on this one because Ted is her favorite. Um, so she is going to be talking mostly and I will let her let her go. You yeah. do your thing. I do my thing. <laughs> yeah, guys, we're still going to keep we're going to keep the conversation casual, but you know, I kind of had a discussion with Casper as far as I just preferred to kind of be the lead on this one because uh, you know, I have my my top favorites as far as my serial killers here and and Ted is definitely my number one. Um, and when I say as far as my favorites, just to I don't know if I mentioned this on the first podcast, but um I really considered a career at one point in my in my lifetime of being a criminal psychologist, and I was uh, really um, inspired by uh, a woman by the name of Dr. Helen, I believe Helen Robinson or Robinson. I may be screwing up that last name. I apologize, but um, Morrison. Oh my good God! Sorry, guys. It's been one of them days. Robertson Morrison, yeah, because those those sound the same. They're very um, similar. They, they're very similar. They really are. Um, so, Dr. Helen Morrison is a very famous criminal psychologist that actually studied John Wayne Gacy specifically. She actually owned John Wayne Gacy's brain. He wanted her to have it after he was executed. Um, so, she was a really big inspiration for me. And um, it's not so much being fascinated with what they did; it's being fascinated with what makes them do what they do. Because in no way, shape, or form do we condone it in any way, and I know we've mentioned that several times, but we definitely want to bring insight to people who maybe are not aware of why, who these killers are and why they ultimately did what they did. Um, the film that's coming out, along with the Netflix documentary, Wick, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, um, that is the movie about Ted Bundy that's coming out that uh, Zac Efron, that we all know from the 
high school musical Disney fame will be playing uh, the infamous Ted Bundy. And um, I just wanted to preface by saying before we get started that there's been a big thing recently now on social media, especially with the uh, Netflix documentary and the movie coming out and all the scenes with Zac Efron that in some way uh, Ted Bundy is being glorified or people are making comments about, oh, how hot he is or was or whatnot. And I think that kind of brings it all back to what drove this case and why Ted got away as much of what he did is because he was a good looking guy. He was hot. He's exactly what everybody is saying about him now that everybody said about him then 40 years ago, why women were flocking to his trial because they could not believe this very well put together, very good looking law student psychology major would have anything to do with these brutal, horrific crimes of these young women. Um, so we are really going to make a point to not only go deep into his background, but a lot of as much detail as we can in the allotted time of his murders, because I don't want to glorify him in any way, shape or form. I want people to know that he ruined lives. This was a sadistic, manipulative, pathological liar that was a narcissist that had an inferiority complex that saw each and every one of his victims as objects and not people. And it was a me, it was a, 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 to justify a means by murdering them. So this was all very planned and calculated. He did not care about his victims. This is not someone that needs to be glorified or seen as hot or lusted after he was a sadistic person. And I think it's, even more so a point of saying that even to women now, you know, a lot of straight women are so quick to, and a lot of them are even afraid to admit it that, you know, they're not going to talk to the creepy guy with the limp, but they'll talk to the hot guy that lives down the hall in apartment B that rides up the elevator with them. That could be the guy that's going to cut off your head, keep it in his freezer. Ladies, like you don't judge a book by its cover. You don't. You just don't. Be be weary, be careful, always know your surroundings, and don't automatically believe that because this guy is well-spoken, good-looking, and put together that he's got it all going on. So I'm not trying to scare women, but I think this is a really cautionary tale of what to look out for. And don't always think that because this guy's good-looking and put together that he is who he says he is. I also um, like to say, too... Our hearts go out to every single one of the families yeah, that were affected you, by all of this because I have to say there was a part in one of the documentary tapes that kind of got to me. Um, I don't remember the exact girl's mother, but she was just sobbing and she's like, you know, I want him to get what's coming to him. And these, these parents lost their children and... It's just like we said before, who knows? Who knows how many it is? Truly. And these women had goals. These women had dreams. They had lives. They had friends. They had families. They had, I would, from what I would imagine, so much going for them. It's just like the one whose dancing career was ruined by him. And she was actually a survivor. And she's still living. And... My heart goes out to every single one of those families because it's, yeah, it too. is so devastating because you, you know, you kind of think it'll never be me. That would never happen to me. That would never happen to somebody I know. And 
I'm I'm just I'm gonna bring it up now. My mother, my own mother. Oh yeah, was, this is a great story, guys. <clears throat> uh, she moved to Florida around '79. My mom had long brown hair, parted down the middle, beautiful. She was almost 20 years old, and she moved down there with her sister, my aunt, and she moved down there around like a year after he was caught. And because he, he was caught in Pensacola and he committed his last murder in Jacksonville and my mother lived 45 minutes away from his last murder. My mom was scared that he was going to break out. It was all over the news down in Florida, you know, because he had he had broken out before. My mom was scared that that was going to happen because she's like, I'm his type. I'm 100% his type. He could come after me. So, I mean... I'm saying that to say this, you, you don't, don't judge a book by its cover. It could Mm -hmm. happen to you. It could happen to somebody, you know, and my mom, my mom said, I'm glad I never met him. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of glad you never met him too, because if you would have met him, then I probably wouldn't exist. She would have been a potential victim. And I mean, my listening to my mom actually being like, I was scared of him breaking out, hearing someone that was that close to him. At the time he was incarcerated, it's 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 mind-boggling to me that my mom was that close to Ted Bundy, and but I mean she even said it. I I texted her and talked to her, and she's like, "Oh yeah, you're talking about Ted Bundy, aren't you?" And then she started talking to me about it, and hearing it from my mom's perspective was even crazy because she knew he was she she knew that she was his type, so. Just don't don't think that it couldn't happen to you, and don't think that it couldn't happen to someone close to you, because it 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 very well can. And this is more of a I feel like they're bringing more of the Ted Bundy thing up because they're trying to warn women to be aware of their surroundings, and because they're trying to bring more of a <clears throat> red flag. Like if you think something's off, trust your gut. Yes, just trust it. One of his survivors from the um, murders in Florida, her name is uh, Kathy Kleiner. It's now Kathy Rubin she goes by. Um, She was one of the survivors of the brutal attack in Florida, and I'll go more into her attack in detail. But um, I just want to bring up a quick quote that she said to TMZ after uh, seeing a uh, clips of the movie Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. And this is why... She specifically, even as a Bundy survivor, was okay with the portrayal in the movie. Um, She says, I quote, I believe that in order to show him exactly the way he was is not really glorifying him, but it's showing him. And when they do say positive and wonderful things about him, that's who they saw. That's who Bundy wanted you to see. Unquote. So... Everything that's everybody's seeing in the movie and the documentary is exactly how Bundy wanted the world to see him. I know me and Casper were just saying a minute ago that if Ted was still alive, he would have loved that Zac Efron was playing him in a movie. He absolutely would have loved it. That would have been ideal for him to have this good-looking heartthrob playing him in a movie. The narcissist If you haven't watched the trailer, do it. Because he looks like him. He acts like him. He definitely studied. He sounds like him. Which, again, we were just talking about. It was... It's crazy. 
he sounds just like him. And Bundy's voice was very distinctive. His mm-hmm. looks were even distinctive. He was able to change his voice in a look. He was very chameleon-like, which was another thing that helped him get away with a lot of what he got away with because he was able to change his looks and his voice just by a matter of how he parted his hair, how he wore a beard, how he dressed, little things. So um, we are going to get into the origins of Ted. He was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th, 1946 in Burlington, Vermont. He was born to Louise Cowell. She was about 15 or 16 at the time, um, and she had him in an unwed mother's home. Um, there were many rumors at the time of who Ted, who's Ted's father was. Um, it was rumored that he was a Navy officer, a married Army officer. Um, it was never really conclusively found who his father was. But the big rumor was it was actually Louise's own father, Ted's grandfather, Samuel Cowell. The man was extremely abusive and violent and racist, and many members of the family, including Louise, were very much afraid of him. Um, After giving birth to Ted, she actually wanted to leave him at the unwed mother's home to be adopted, uh, but his grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor, uh, were completely against this. And they wanted uh, Louise to bring Ted home. So, Which makes me kind of wonder, with him, if his grandfather was his father, why else would he want her to bring him home? He wanted his son home. He wanted his son home. Because and they had girls. Uh, Louise had another had a sister named Julia. So uh, that's why I wholeheartedly believed that he was Samuel's. Because why else would he want his 15-year-old daughter to bring this boy home if it wasn't his boy? Especially because it would look bad on the family with her being an unwed mother. He wanted his child home. That's that's my opinion. I, yeah. I, I really feel like he was. You guys are talking, you know, guys, we're talking about a moment in the, you know, 1946. This isn't like teen mom you're not getting a tv show if you have a baby at 16 you're like shunned from the world it's like the worst thing you could ever do especially since you don't know who the father is um so louise did take him from the unwed mother's home she ended up moving to philadelphia pennsylvania to live with her parents at the time um, and again, to avoid controversy surrounding having a baby so young for the first About five or six years of Ted's life, he was raised to believe that Louise was his sister and that his grandparents were actually his parents. Um, He apparently did not find out uh, the truth until um, about 1950. There were some cousins that apparently told him that, no, Louise is actually your mom, not your sister. Um, They even called him a bastard. Oh, yeah. Kind of made him even think like... Okay, well, what does that mean exactly for me? And that put him on the search for his birth certificate. He held this against his mom for oh, years, yeah. too. Yeah, he held a grudge against her for never being truthful with him about his actual parentage and who his real father was, or even about his real parentage in any way. Um, his father, or I'm sorry, grandfather, well, father, we don't really know. Um, again, like I said, he was described as a very violent, racist man, but Ted very much loved and respected him and was even known as a little boy to cling to him. He would not leave his grandfather's side. He just absolutely loved him. 
Um, Louise decided to escape uh, her parents and her abusive father. And she decided to move in with cousins to Tacoma, Washington in 1950. Again, the same cousins, uh, when Ted was about five or six years old, were the ones that used to tease him and call him a bastard and ultimately told him the truth that Louise was actually his mother, not his sister. Um, the next year in 1951, Louise met and married a man named Johnny Bundy, who later adopted Ted. Uh, so his name was changed to Theodore Robert Bundy. Um, and Johnny and Louise went on to have four more children of their own. Ted described his childhood as very happy and healthy. Uh, he said that he had a lot of friends and that was full of laughter and fun and playing in the woods and being in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts and all those kind of things. But other reports were said that it kind of wasn't. Um, there were childhood friends of Ted that said he just never really quite fit in. He really just couldn't keep up with the other boys when it came to going to camp. He couldn't shoot an arrow like them. He couldn't swim like them. He just, he, he just wasn't enough. And that just never set well with Ted. He wanted to be just like everybody else, if not better. He never wanted to be considered less than. Um, that was even something about his stepfather that he hated. He described him as being dumb and not very smart, not earning enough money. So he never wanted to be associated with his stepfather, even though Johnny Bundy was described as a very sweet man and really wanted to accept Ted as his own son. And the family always went to church on Sundays and went on family vacations and picnics and the beaches and things like that. Um, so as much as his mother and stepfather tried to make it as normal of a childhood for Ted, he just never really quite fit in. There were a lot of reports of him being very to himself, very odd, where he kind of wanted to, he even wanted to keep to himself. He wouldn't even want to reach out to people. He especially, wanted to be by himself. Especially after puberty, later on in oh, high yeah, school, like, that got Especially even worse. like how he, especially at night, he would go out by himself and look in dumpsters for pornography, basically. To put it in short, he would look for pornography, he would look for crime magazines that had sexual violence in them. So he he very much kept to himself. It was said after puberty that, like, he said in interviews that, like, he never really understood people, especially women. He just, he was attracted to women, but he didn't understand women. I don't think he ever really understood people in general. Uh, Which, to be honest, he really understands well, I mean, women. Kind of, who, yeah. I mean, guys, we are women, and we don't get it we sometimes. Don't so we don't even know. We have no idea. So, don't ask us. We are definitely <laughs> not the experts on that one. Um, so, yeah, and it's kind of funny you brought up the porn thing, because he kind of tried to use that as an excuse later of All of a sudden, that, some religious epiphany that he had where he's like, well, I'm just going to blame all of this on pornography. Everything on pornography. Can we talk about how many people have watched pornography and how many people aren't just going around killing? Guys. <laughs> Can't blame it on pornography, Guys. all right? <laughs> Porn is not going to make you want to kill people. If anything, it can be a great stress reliever. Just saying. Um, 
Disclosure, that's true. We're advocating porn, not murder. Listen to the Red Bunny episode. Enjoy the porn. (laughs) Enjoy the porn, not the murder. Anyway. Um, So, yeah, in high school, uh, again, Ted was uh, very reserved, very introverted, very much kept to himself, said he did not understand women, um, had a disdain for his adopted father, and, again, his obsession with very violent porn at that time started. He actually, at the um, same time, when he would look for it, he would go out at night and he would try to find women who had windows open, blinds open, and he basically would be a peeping Tom. He would watch them. And obviously this trait led to later crimes. Um, he actually was arrested in high school of auto theft and burglary. Um, I'm sure through one of those nights when he was around peeping and jumping in dumpsters, um, he, his record was actually expunged when he turned 18. So, you know, any time that, you know, any disappearances came up later, they would have never been able to look into his background because he had his records expunged. Um, he ended up graduating high school in 1965. Um, quick side note. So... Again, we did happen to mention that nobody really is for sure exactly how many murders Bundy uh, committed. He ultimately confessed to about 30. I think roughly the number came out to about 36 uh, the night before he was executed. But there have been estimates that there have been up to even 100 or more women that he could have murdered. Um, So the actual number was rounded off to about 20 identified murder victims and five survivors between 1974 and 1978. But back when Ted was 14, he was actually a suspect in a disappearance of an eight-year-old girl named Anne Marie Burr on August 31st, 1961. Reason being is she lived on his newspaper route. Um, In 1987, he told Robert Keppel, who was a very famous Washington State detective, uh, Robert Keppel was actually the lead investigator on the Gary Ridgway murders, if any of you are familiar with the Green River Killer. There's been several movies and documentaries made about him. Uh, Ted told Robert in his confessions that there were some murders that he just would not talk about because they were quote-unquote too close to home. So one of those, Robert, just automatically suspected that it must be this young eight-year-old girl, Ann Burr. Um, the thing is, Ted repeatedly denied any involvement in her in her murder. He never, ever, ever, ever stated that he had anything to do with it, even when as far as to write a letter to her family, staunchly denying that he had anything to do with the murder. Um, later in 2011, there was actually DNA testing done on material that was found at the crime scene. It ultimately yielded uh, any insufficient evidence compared to DNA matching that of Ted Bundy. So, um, yeah, I just thought I'd make that a little side note because we don't exactly know. It's suspected that he started in 1974, but there are still people to this day that believe that that eight-year-old girl, even though with this new DNA evidence, was potentially his first victim when he was 14. Um, So getting back to him graduating high school in 65... Uh, he ended up enrolling in the University of Washington in 1966. Um, A year after that, in 1967, he became involved with a woman named Diane. 
Um, she has been known in books by the pseudonym, pseudonym, sorry, Stephanie, but he referred to her in the documentary as Diane. So we can just assume that maybe that was her real name. Um, this was the relationship that really was a big turning point for him. Um, she was kind of this rich sort of well put together, high class girl from California that Ted just became completely infatuated with. She was like everything that he wanted to be this affluent family. She had money, she had a nice car and he just was totally infatuated and impressed by her. Everything. She also had long Brown hair parted down the middle. And as we stated before, this kind of became Ted's sort of, uh, his profile, his profile basically of what he looked for in women. So, um, he ended up actually dropping out of the University of Michigan two years later in 1968, and he worked a series of minimum wage jobs. Um, in order to de- impress Diane, uh, he kind of got involved in politics a little bit. Um, he volunteered in Seattle, Washington for Nelson Rockefeller, who was the 41st vice president under Gerald Ford. He also attended the Republican National Convention in Miami, Florida in 1968. Um, Shortly that same year, Diane, apparently unimpressed, moved back to California and ended the relationship with Ted. This apparently devastated him. Uh, She said that he was extremely immature and that he lacked ambition. So that ended up becoming Coming kind of the turning point in his life. Um, it's been stated that this may have also, uh, again, contributed to physical attributes that Diane shared with his victims. Um, after that breakup in 69, uh, Bundy traveled to Colorado. He visited relatives in Arkansas, and then he went all the way east that summer to Philadelphia. He actually attended Temple University for a semester. Um, there's another quick side note in the Philadelphia area in the summer of 1969, there were actually, uh, two murders that happened that year. Um, there were two women, Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry. They were both college friends, age 19. They were stabbed to death on May 30th, 1969. Their car was found near the Garden State Parkway near Atlantic City, New Jersey, and their bodies were found in a wooded area nearby. Um, Bundy was considered a strong suspect. The case does remain open. And that was part of one of the confessions that he gave that he did murder two women near New Jersey. So it's rumored that these may be those two women. But again, there was never any evidence and the case still remains open, even though Ted was their, their number one suspect. Um, by that fall of 1969, Ted was back in Washington and then he ended up meeting Elizabeth uh, Klepfer, I'll refer to her as Liz, uh, for the remainder of the podcast. Um, again, this was another really big relationship. There's kind of three women that we'll probably touch base on throughout Ted's life that kind of played really significant roles. Diane kind of being that one that was totally unimpressed that shared those physical attributes. And then next Liz, uh, who he met, in 1969 at a bar. She was a divorced mother of one uh, that was from Utah that worked at the University of Washington. She fell madly in love with Ted. Um, She was very impressed by his looks, by his charm, by his charisma, but there were a few signs even early on that just 
something wasn't quite right about him. Um, he would go into these just like weird fits where if she did something that he didn't agree with, he would just lock her out of the house for no reason. And he would leave her outside for hours. And then when he would let her back in, he would just welcome her with hugs and kisses as if nothing happened. Um, he would, she'd wake up in the middle of the night. You and I were talking about this. I thought, oh my God, this would be ultimate creep factor. This is a red flag, you guys. Total red flag. (laughs) So she wakes up in the middle of the night to Ted examining her body with a flashlight. Like under the covers, looking at every inch of her body with a flashlight. Um, okay, guys. I feel like if you woke up to that, um, something is wrong. Hello. Like, are we playing doctor? Is this operation? Like, what are we doing? I'd be like, it's the middle of the night. Um, I'm trying to sleep. Can we? Can we? Can I sleep? Can we not? Is that fine? Can, Can I we sleep? not do Is that? that fine? Yeah. So there were there were clearly signs, clearly signs that something was wrong with him. But again, he was very attractive, very charismatic, um, and. She had a one-year-old daughter that Ted, he would pick her up from daycare and watch her when Liz was at work. She felt like, you know, maybe nobody would want me after having this child. And Ted welcomed her with open arms and was very sweet and loving and kind to her daughter. Um, In that movie that's coming out, um, it's actually focused more on the relationship between Liz and Ted. She wrote a book about the relationship with him. So um, the movie doesn't, apparently from what I've heard, really doesn't touch base a lot on the murders per se, but it does give you more of an account of him as a real person because it's written kind of from her narrative as his girlfriend. Are they like interviewing her? Like mostly through the movie, they're like interviewing her and kind of getting her perspective on the whole situation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So she's played uh, by Lily Collins, isn't she? Exactly. Yeah. That's what I thought. Wonderful job. If you guys see the trailer, really did a great. Yeah. Job if you haven't watched movie. the trailer, immediately just pause this right now and go watch the trailer. Pause. <laughs> Search on YouTube. Watch. There you go. You got it. All right. You're back now. Um. Cool. So we're good. And we're back. Um. Ted actually was in love with with Liz. Um, Almost called her Lily. Holy crap. Um, Ted was in love with Liz, but uh, it was said that he felt that she was kind of inadequate to him, that they just really didn't have a lot of things in common. I mean, she definitely was no Diane. She wasn't super sophisticated and rich. So um, in the mid-1970s, more focused, Ted actually decided to re-enroll back in college. He went back to the University of Washington, and this time he majored in psychology, of all things. Um, He was an honor student. He was very well liked by professors. And uh, around this time in 1971 in Seattle, Ted worked at a suicide crisis hotline center. He, at that time, worked with a woman named Ann Rule, who went on to become a uh, criminal author. She wrote about different true crimes. She wrote the most definitive Bundy biography. It's a book called A Stranger Beside Me. I read this book years ago. If you guys ever get a chance to get a hold of this book, it is amazing. It is a really amazing firsthand account to someone who knew Bundy personally. 
And uh, she later worked as a Seattle police officer. And like I said, she's written a lot of other crime novels. So this woman really knows her stuff. Um, She described him at the time as a very kind person, just as everybody else did. Really kind, charismatic, good-looking guy. Um, In 1972, he graduated from the University of Washington with a degree in psychology. Um, He again became involved in politics. He... uh, was campaigning for the governor of Washington at the time, Daniel Evans, who was trying to get reelected. He was working for the chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. And in 1973, he was accepted to the Seattle University School of Law because ultimately Ted wanted to be a lawyer. That was his ultimate goal, was that he wanted to practice law. Um, That same year, while he was in California, he actually got hooked back up with Diane. He was there for the Republican Party. She, at this time, I guess, was really impressed by him. He had graduated college. He was in politics. She's like, he's looking kind of good now, so I think I'm going to give this a shot. And uh, they, basically, he was dating her while he was dating Liz. He was known to cheat on Liz a lot, so he definitely was no model boyfriend on top of being a sadistic necrophilic necrophiliac serial killer um and also neither of the women knew the other one even existed mm-mm. they they weren't even aware so he he had manipulated them to the point where he was literally dating both women yeah at the same time yeah gave zero fucks about it yeah didn't care yeah he didn't care he, um, he who knows if he even was dating other women at the same time yeah like, not, not even joking. He was a womanizer, guys. He knew what he was doing. Um, so in 73, uh, while he was attending law school and still dating Diane and Liz at the same time, uh, but that following year, in January of 1974, he broke up with Diane and didn't really even break up with her, just stopped all contact with her. She actually reached out and called him up one day yelling at him demanding as to why she stopped talking to him and he just simply said i don't know what you're talking about so it was pretty much his way of saying hey i remembered what you did to me and now that i've got myself back where i'm happy i'm gonna i'm gonna give it back to you because again he was a narcissist he had to be the one to win he was he had to win that was pretty much his fuck you to her and that was his Way of being in control. Ted always had to be in control. Always. If he wasn't in control, he wasn't happy. At every moment. In every moment of his life, if he, when he lost control, women started disappearing. Yeah, he couldn't handle it. He had to have some kind of means of control. So that was his way of being like, oh, so we're together now. I'm in control of the situation. Fuck off. Yeah. That was basically what he did. Yeah. I'm going to let you think everything's all great and I'm welcoming you back with open arms and promising you marriage and roses and white picket fences, but no, fuck you, bitch. Like, there was always an agenda because he had to win. Um, By April of 1974, uh, Bundy just stopped attending law school altogether. Um, Around this time is, like I mentioned before, 1974 is when his murder started and many young women around the Pacific Northwest area started going missing um coincidentally around this time in the beginning of the murders ted was working 
of all things for the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission. And he even wrote a pamphlet for them about rape prevention. Can we just can we just stop for a second? That is how smart this guy was. Can we just stop for a second? Because what (laughs) he was doing exactly what the pamphlets were saying how to prevent. Like what he felt like he was smarter than the police. Oh, he he, till the time the man died, he thought he was smarter than everybody else. Everybody, everyone else. He knew more, he just... He knew how to play. He knew how to play people. He didn't even have a law degree, but he knew the law better than a lawyer. And you're not going to tell him any different. The man studied law and psychology. What are you going to do? I mean, come on, guys. When we get more into the murders and how he covered his tracks, there, uh, he knew what he was doing. These were planned methodically, so he knew he left no evidence, no traces... Which is why to this day, most of the bodies still haven't even really been identified. But there were little things that we'll go into, too, that you and I talked about. That there were ways that maybe he did want to be. Like, he didn't want to be caught, but he kind of, but he wanted to make sure people knew who he was. Because the narcissist in He him. gave his own name. Yep. He gave his own name. People are, we're, look, we're searching for a Ted. Didn't use a Bob. Didn't use a mic, didn't use a, you know, he used Ted, even used his real name. So even though he didn't want to get caught, it was like, but I don't want anybody else to get credit for this, though. That was the narcissist That's, in him. There was a narcissist. Yep. There it was. There it was. Um, so on January 4th, this is, so apparently this is when, again, we are not exactly sure when his murders and assaults started. We don't have a definitive date But it's believed that on January 4th, 1974, was his first essential assault. Um, This was not too long after he broke up with Diane. He entered the apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks, and he beat her senseless with a metal bed frame. Um, A rod from that same metal bed frame he used to rape her with. She was unconscious for 10 days, but uh, she did ultimately survive the attack. She does have lifelong uh, injuries and disabilities, though, uh, subsequently from that. Um, On February 1st, not long after the attack on Karen, he broke, again, broke into the apartment of another woman, 21-year-old Linda Healy, and he beat her to death and dragged her body away uh, into the woods, presumably. The only thing that was found later was her skull in Taylor Mountain Forest in Washington. This became a really popular area for him to dump bodies. Um, More women that same year fitting descriptions similar to the first two women, again, the long brown hair, started missing. Donna Manson, age 19, was a college student in Olympia, Washington, that went missing. So did 18-year-old Susan Rancourt on April 17th from Central Washington State College Campus in Ellensburg, Washington. Um, at that time, witnesses ID'd 
a tan VW Beetle. So we'll reference a lot of Volkswagen Beetles. That was kind of Ted's infamous car. Um, apparently it's at a museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee right now. It's but a museum, yep. Right. We, I, if you guys do watch the documentary, I guess there was more insight. It's not like Ted was just a Volkswagen aficionado. Apparently in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest during that time, um, from what I gathered from the documentary and just even in research that in Washington, Oregon, and I think also in Utah, there were Volkswagen dealerships. So there were literally VW bugs everywhere. I mean, it was such a common car back in the 70s. I think, actually, it's kind of fucked up. My dad today was just telling me that he drove a VW Beetle. I never even knew that. Like, how weird did that come up in conversation? It's been like the polar vortex here, guys, and... My dad happened to be telling me a story about when he worked up in Chicago and, well, it wasn't negative 45, but negative 15 was pretty cold. I don't, guys, any fucking temperature that's negative anything is cold. I would just like to point out the I fact I don't care that if it's negative 15 or negative 45, it's cold. It's zero cold. degrees right now with a wind chill of negative, like, 15. Yeah. If the degree is nothing, something is not right. Hashtag frostbite. <laughs> frostbite. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. So, Hashtag death. Right. Titanic in the air. So that's why I wanted to make a point of saying about the VW Beetle. I know that's kind of his infamous car, but there was a reasoning behind it. There were a lot of dealerships around that time. They even so mentioned really that in the documentary. Um, in the documentary, yeah. they said, weren't there like 45,000... Of them driving around at the time or something like that? Yes. Yeah. One of his really good friends that he knew when he moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, had a VW Bug. So, yeah. It was a very popular car at the time. Um, on May 6, 1974, Roberta Parks, age 22, was another victim. She went missing from Oregon State University or in, in uh, Corvallis, Washington. Uh, by this time, after so many disappearances, cops started to become concerned um, the only thing that tied these women together, again, was the fact that they had brown hair, uh, they were young college students, they were attractive, long brown hair parted down the middle. Um, on June 1st, Brenda Ball, age 22, went missing after leaving a bar near Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. She was last seen talking to a man that had his arm in a sling. That was another thing that Bundy was well known for. He would feign injuries. He would either have his leg in a cast or his arm in a cast. And, you know, you see this good looking guy that's like, oh, hey, can you help me out here? And I was actually mentioning this to someone a few days ago. Um, the movie Silence of the Lambs was a perfect movie as far as profiling serial killers. And there were several, there was a handful of serial killers that were used to uh, profile and ultimately create this fictional character in the movie Buffalo Bill. Well, there's a specific scene in the movie where he has a fake cast and his arm in a sling, if you remember, and he's trying to get that girl to help him move a couch into his van, and he kidnaps her. Like, that right there, guys, came directly from Ted Bundy. That came directly from him. That was something that he repeatedly used as a ruse to kidnap women. Um, 
not long after Jane, June 11th, another University of Washington student, Georgianne Hawkins, she was 18. She vanished from her boyfriend's dorm. Um, they never found a trace of evidence. Witnesses later saw that same tan VW Beetle. This time it was a guy in a leg cast, not an arm cast. Um, around this time, that same year, Bundy met another woman that's going to play a very pivotal role in his life. Remember we told you guys there's at least, there's, there's three all together, Diane, Liz, and then now Carol Ann Booth. She was, she was a divorced mother of two that was working in Olympia, Washington at, you guys are not going to believe this. She worked at, and Ted also worked with her. Again, we said he worked at a suicide prevention hotline, wrote a pamphlet about rape prevention, he worked at the Department of Emergency Services. This is a state agency that's involved in the search for missing women. So not only did he work for rape prevention, he worked for an agency that was looking for the women he took. Guys. Just try to grasp that for Guys. a second. Just re- you talk about someone that knows what the hell he's doing. And gave, again, zero fucks. Zero. The guy was a narcissist. He did not care. Didn't he care. He didn't care. Did not care what he was doing. Didn't care. Um, Carol Ann uh, ended up becoming a very important woman in his life for the next six, six years of his of his life. She really played a pivotal role in did a lot for him, and we're going to definitely get into her later. That's a crazy story between those two. Um, in 1974, in the states of Washington and Oregon, people became um, on high alert after the assault of Karen Sparks, the poor woman that he you know, beat with the metal rod, and then the six women that had been missing during this time. Law enforcement was really pressured. You know, they literally had nothing. Ted was so good about covering his tracks. The The guy just, I mean, later when he confessed to murders, he would say how he would purposefully take the clothes off and, and either burn them or dump them in trash bins or goodwill bins. He, he never left evidence. He always changed his appearance. Even though there were some dumb things that he did, he did other things that were incredibly intelligent to make sure that he definitely was not going to get caught. Like, he just mastered him. He knew what he was doing. Definitely knew what he was doing. Um, ultimately, everything culminated in July of 1974, specifically on July 14th. There were two women that went missing, in, and I've been trying to practice this word, word guys. I believe it's Lake... I think it's Sammamish. Sammamish? Sammamish. Lake Sammamish, Sammamish or Sammamish. If you live in Washington State, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. If we fuck the name up, we apologize. We're trying. Um, we are trying. And uh, it's in a town in Washington called Issaquea. Yeah, I, I tried to attempt that. Um, several Again, women, we're trying. Again, we're trying. So... Uh, there was a man calling himself Ted that was, again, near this tan VW Beetle that people ID'd all around this lake during that weekend. Um, he approached Janice Ott, age 23. There were witnesses that saw her with him. She later went missing. A few hours later, so did 19-year-old Dennis Na- Denise Nasland. 
Um, both women were brutally murdered by Ted, and their skeletal remains were found two miles uh, east of the park. Once uh, King County, Washington State Police got a hold of this sketch of the person that everybody saw that was calling himself Ted, they sent flyers all up around the Seattle area and printed them in newspapers. I also want to point out um, on the two you just said, Janice Ott and Denise Naslin, there were, I'm pretty sure at some point he even said that he made one of them watch the other one get murdered. Um, when he murdered the two of them, yeah. he forced one of them to watch the other one get murdered. Yeah. So that's just a side note for you as well. And that again goes back to the type of person that he was. Control. Had to be in control. Wanted yep. to make sure he was in control as manipulative as possible. Um, Liz, uh, after seeing the flyers and everything printed in the newspapers, Liz and Rule, again, the uh, woman that wrote the biography that worked with him, um, a former psychology professor and co-worker, all four came forward to report that Bundy may have been a potential suspect because he fit the description. Um, but detectives didn't think that he was a potential perpetrator, again, because he was this clean-cut law student and he had no adult criminal record. Again, remember we said that the record that he had from when he was a teen was expunged. So because there was no record, and he's this clean cut college student. Even the cops at the time were like, no, there's no way this guy did it. So um, on September 6th, 1974, officially Ott and Naslin's remains were found. And so were the remains of uh, Hawkins. Six months later, in March of 1975, Students from a local college found the skulls of Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball on Taylor Mountain. Um, again, this is a summit of the Sonoma Mountains in California. The only person's remains that were never found were uh, Manson's or Mason's. Um, by August 1974, after the July murders, Bundy got a second acceptance letter to the University of Utah Law, and he moved to Salt Lake City, and he left Liz in Seattle. Again, while he was in Utah, cheated on her with several women. None of them, again, knew about each other. Um, at the time, he was in law, just with, law school. Just within his first year, he found the curriculum to be in comprehensible and he was totally devastated that he couldn't keep up with the rest of the students and he just couldn't get the curriculum it was just way too hard for him he just did not have the same intellectual capacity as the other students did and again this was just something that he could not accept because this would be admitting that he was inferior in some way and he just anytime that ever happened too that. women started disappearing yeah he was going into one of his one of his episodes where he was losing control, and when he was losing control, he couldn't handle it. So he had to find a way to take control. Can, yep. And that was through the murders. Um, so two homicides the following months would have remained undiscovered and unsolved had Bundy not confessed to them right before he was executed. On September 2nd, 1974, he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho whose body was later photographed. He photographed and dismembered before dumping into a river. This was actually something he was known to do. He would go back and visit victims after he murdered them and take Polaroid pictures of them. 
Um, on October 2nd, he raped a 16-year-old girl named Nancy Wilcox in order to curb these urges. Apparently, according to him, he never intended to kill her. He just raped her so that he could quiet this voice in his head. But because she kept screaming, he accidentally strangled her, according to him. It was a total accident. He never intended on killing her. Um, she just wouldn't stop screaming. So, although her remains were never found, uh, Ted admitted that he buried them in Capitol Reef National Park, which was 200 miles away from where she went missing in Utah. On October 18th, Melissa Smith, who was the 17-year-old daughter of the police chief of Midvale, Utah. Midvale is a Salt Lake City suburb. She went missing. Her naked body was found nine days later. And then on Halloween that same year, October 31st, of course, Lori, I'm sorry, Laura Aim, who was also 17, disappeared. I cannot talk, guys. I'm sorry. Like 25 miles south in Utah. Her naked body was found on Thanksgiving Day, nine miles away. Both women were beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. That nylon stocking thing kind of became another trademark of his. Um, he also came back later and did something that he was later known to do and he admitted to do with victims. He would shampoo their hair. He would clean them. He would put makeup on them. Uh, in his exact words, he would say that they could be anything that you wanted them to be at at that point. So he would literally go back to their bodies to basically engage in sexual acts with them post mortem. He would Yep. He would he he literally did it until their bodies were just so decomposed and broken down by the elements and the animals. He did it until he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, the word they used was putrefied. If that makes it any better for you. Until their body was putrefied. Doesn't that word sound terrible? Like, you just read that word and you say it out loud. It's kind of like the word penetrate. There's just never never a good time to ever use the word penetrate. (laughs) Never. Never. In any horrible case. Horrible P words. We don't like those P words. Horrible P words. They're horrible P words. Um, on November 8th, uh, Ted approached 18-year-old Carol DeRanch at a mall, which was less than a mile away from Midvale, where Smith was last seen. Uh, he pretended to be a police officer. He said someone had broken into her car and he needed to take her to the station to file a report and took her to his car, started driving towards the police station, but then went a different route and she kind of started freaking out. He pulled off to the side of the road and attempted to assault her. A struggle ensued where he tried to handcuff her, but he ended up putting the set of handcuffs around the same wrist. She managed to escape and ran. Um, I guess he was so pissed off that she got away that very same day, a few hours later, 20 miles away from that mall, uh, he kidnapped 17-year-old Deborah Kent, after a play at her high school, her partial remains were found 100 miles away. And the same exact key for the handcuffs that Durach was wearing was found in the parking lot of the school where Kent went missing. Uh, later that same month in November, Liz went back to the King County, Washington police station. Um, remember, if you guys remember, she actually went over the summer previously to report 
after seeing flyers and stuff going around. So she went back again after reading about women missing in Salt Lake City. A detective interviewed her in detail. But even by that time, witnesses from the Lake uh, Sammamish, where Ott and Naslin went missing and were ultimately murdered, they were not able to identify Bundy in a lineup. So even witnesses then. So, you know, they interviewed Liz to the best ability, but even at that time, they had little to, little to go on. Uh, he was still added to a list of suspects, but again, there was no evidence to link him. Uh, in January of 1975, Ted came back and spent a week t- with Liz in Seattle, but she never told him about reporting him to the police. In early 1975, Bundy began shifting focus to Colorado, where on January 12, 1975, he kidnapped 23-year-old uh, registered nurse Karen Campbell at the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village, Colorado, and her naked body was found a month later down a dirt road near the hotel. She had been bludgeoned to death. A hundred miles from Snowmass on March 15th, Ted approached 26-year-old Julie Cunningham, uh, again, with his old standby on crutches and a leg cast, asking for help to his car, where she hand, where he ultimately handcuffed her, he sexually assaulted her, strangled her to death, and dumped her body 90 miles away. On April 6th, 25-year-old Denise uh, Olverson disappeared near the Utah-Colorado border. Bundy stated that he threw her body into the Colorado River, but it was never found. On May 6th, a month later, Bundy kidnapped 12-year-old Lynette Culver from outside her school in Pocatello, Idaho, where he later sexually assaulted, drowned her in a tub at his hotel room, and disposed of her body in a river north of town. So, again, a lot of you women that are like, oh, well, he's hot, he's... No, he went after babies, little kids. She was 12, 12 years old, guys. Keep that in mind. In June of that same year, Bundy was back in Seattle. He was with Liz, uh, where they actually discussed getting married that Christmas. She was still considering even wanting to be with him after what she knew. Um, she did later go back to the police, uh, reported him again at this time. Or no, I'm sorry. She didn't go back to the police yet. Not around this time. Um, he was actually dating Carol Ann Booth around this time. Same time he was dating Liz, again, Neither one of them knew about each other. Carol Ann would go and visit him in Seattle, or I'm sorry, in Salt Lake City, Utah. He would go back to Seattle to see Liz. Neither one of them knew anything about each other. Long story short, this man got around. Oh, yeah. (laughs) For real. Um, On June 28th, 15-year-old Susan Curtis vanished from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Um, Her body, along with Wilcox Cunningham, Overson and Culver were never found. So, again, this is why we really don't have any idea how many women he actually did murder. Because not only did he lie about it or wasn't completely truthful about it, a lot of bodies were never found. So, we don't know. Um, In August of 1975, Ted Bundy was actually baptized as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, even though he never attended services and obviously didn't practice any of their ideals. Um, He was later excommunicated, big surprise, after his arrest in 1976. Uh, Later that same month in August, he was arrested after leading Utah Highway Patrol officer on a high-speed chase after he was found cruising a neighborhood probably potentially looking for another apartment or house to break into. Um, 
when he told officers that he was lost, but they found a lot of suspicious items in his car. They found a ski mask, pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, rope. Um, they found an ice pick. All of these Ted apparently had an explanation for, which I don't know how you would explain having a ski mask in your ice pick. And you know, sometimes I just like to wear it around. I just enjoy wearing my ski mask to the store. You know, when I'm picking at ice, guys, <laughs> flies back in my face, and I need this ski mask on. So, gotta do it when I'm scraping my car. Gotta do I it. Just, I need it. I need it. It's life. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you explain that. That must have been a slow day at the police police station. Um, a detective later remembered Ted's car and his description from the kidnapping, as well as when Liz called the police. Uh, when they searched his apartment, they found a brochure with a ski resort and a check next to Wildwood Inn. Now, if you remember, this is where Karen Campbell went missing in snow mass. But still, all of this was considered circumstantial. There wasn't some sufficient enough evidence, so Bundy was released. Salt Lake City Police did end up placing him on a 24-hour surveillance, and officers from Salt Lake City flew to Seattle to interview Liz. So I apologize. This is the time that this would actually be the third time now that Liz has spoken to the police. Also, side note, when they missed the evidence, they didn't have sufficient evidence for him. They missed an entire box full of photos that he took of all of his victims. Yeah. And he even told them later, he said, you missed that entire box. And as soon as he was released, he immediately destroyed those photos. And this is why we said, too, he felt like the cops were stupid. Things I mean, that it, it was an entire box was, of pictures of all of his victims. He felt like he was smarter. You guys missed that? Really? It's almost like I left it in plain sight for you to, for you to find I feel it. like he did leave it in plain sight, especially for him to later be like... You missed a whole box full of photos of the victims. I feel like he wanted to be like, you bunch of dumbasses. I had it right there. He felt like he was smarter. And maybe in a way he was, you know? I think it was the elements of the time. I think it was the elements of him having the psychology major and the law major. It was just a lot working for him and a lot working against the cops, unfortunately. I mean, guys, you have to remember, this is 40 years ago. There was no CSI. There's no phones. There's no computers. You know, by the time you're getting tips and leads in from anything, especially, you guys have to remember, he didn't stay in one place at one time for too long. He would have so many victims here, so many victims there. And a lot of these states were not communicating with each other. You know, ultimately, it was Liz that came forward and read reports of stuff that was going on in Utah that sounded very similar to what happened in Washington. And she's like, um, we're putting two and two together here. Like they're even describing the same car and the same guy named Ted. It's like this, something can be chalked up to a coincidence and other things. It's like, okay, come on, come on now. Like this is, this is to the point of just ridiculousness. Um, so when they flew to, Washington to talk with Liz. She started saying that she found things in his apartment and in her home that just did not make sense. She found a set of crutches, plaster of Paris, along with some surgical bandages, a meat cleaver, even though Ted really wasn't known to be a cook. 
uh, surgical gloves, an oriental knife, and a sack of women's clothing. Uh, she also found other stolen items like TVs and things like that. When she confronted Ted with them, he became extremely angry and told her, if you tell anyone, I will break your fucking neck. Quote, unquote. Yeah. Exactly. From him. Um, she said that uh, he would just do really unusual things. Um, again, like we mentioned, locking her out, examining her body with the flashlight, getting extremely emotional when she would ever mention about cutting her hair, just really weird things. And again, we mentioned as a kid how he would just wander around at night. She said that that was something else that he did, that he would just wander. And uh, one of the key pieces was that during the dates of when some of these victims went missing in the Pacific Northwest, it was confirmed that Ted was not with Liz at the time. So when they would throw out dates to her, she would go, no, he, he wasn't with me when this happened. So there, like, no alibi. If that was the alibi he was going to use, that wasn't going to fly because clearly she's like, he definitely wasn't with me at all. Um, so in September, attempting to sell his VW bug, um, it was impounded by Utah police and FBI techs actually found hair fibers matching three of his victims, one of them being the kidnapped victim that got away. Speaking of which, on October 2nd, she identified Bundy in a lineup. Um, they didn't have much evidence to go by in the disappearance of the younger girl, Deborah Kent, but they knew for sure that they could charge him with the kidnapping and assault of Derange, which is exactly what they did. Um, he was freed on bail his mom paid his bail, and while he was out on bail, he spent all of his time when he was with Liz. He was kept on close surveillance, and in November of 1975, three detectives from Utah, Washington State, and Colorado all came together, finally, to exchange information, and every single one of them believed that Ted was the guy who had committed these kidnappings, these murders, and these assaults. But they all knew that they had to give really, really hard evidence against him to convict him of murder, because again, he was just way, way too smart. Um, on February 23rd, 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Carol DeRanche kidnapping. In October, he was charged in Colorado with Karen Campbell's murder. Um, the judge in the case of Durant found him guilty of her assault and kidnapping, and he was sentenced to a maximum of 15 years in prison. For the Karen Campbell murder in Colorado, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 1977. On June 7, 1977, he was transferred to Pitkin County Courthouse for his hearing. He had elected to act as his own attorney, so even though he was a suspect in a murder case, he was not shackled or handcuffed at all. Hello? I mean, almost like, and, and, and virtually had no supervision whatsoever either. Okay, I understand that when you want to be your own lawyer in a case, they're going to give you a little leeway. But if you're on trial for murder and people think you've committed, how many are we up to now? Fifteen? Yeah, we're over a dozen now. Like fifteen people, but we're just gonna leave them. We're just go go to the library by yourself. It's fine. Go on. You can go by yourself. You're not shackled or anything, but feel free. He was just convicted and sentenced to fifteen years in prison 
for kidnapping and assaulting a woman. He is a suspect, and like we stated, well over at at least a dozen murders and kidnappings. But we're just, we're just, we're just, we're gonna, we're, we're, we're not putting those handcuffs on. You're fine. He's fine. You're fine. He's not gonna do anything. He's, He's fine. Right. He's okay. So, during the recess, he was permitted to visit the courthouse law library, which was on the second story. And again, like we said, wasn't shackled, wasn't handcuffed, had virtually little to no supervision whatsoever. He subsequently jumped from the second story window of the courthouse He shed the outer layer of clothing he was wearing at the time and ran through the streets of Aspen until he got into the woods and the mountains. He ended up eluding capture for six days where he stole food and clothes and water along trails. Um, He also sprained his ankle when he did that. Yeah. He he did get injured when he hit the ground, which, fun fact, side note, he actually prepared himself in his cell to hit... To hit the ground because he was planning on trying to escape at some point. He would never tell anybody about it. He was planning on trying to escape. So what he would do is he would jump from his bed to the floor extremely hard. So his he was preparing his legs to hit the ground at a... Basically from a really high point if needed. That's right. And that's when he saw his opportunity and that's why he did it. Although he did actually sprain his ankle when he did it. Yeah, and that's ultimately what he, there were roadblocks everywhere. So when he realized that he was not going to get out of Aspen six days, on that sixth day, he stole a car, was driving back towards Aspen, ended up getting pulled over because he was weaving in and out of traffic because he was in so much pain from his ankle. This is traffic violation number two. Yep. Ted Bundy was a horrible driver. You guys remember me saying that? I think the last time that like, he just was, yeah. Not a good driver. Yeah. If Bundy would have gone to driver's ed, then maybe he would have gotten away with it. I think think about the fact, though, that if if he actually wasn't a bad driver, he might have legitimately gotten away with all of it. Guys, I, I look back on a lot of murders and crimes and stuff that I've researched just in my own day to day habits and just for my own curiosities. And so many of these criminals are just so fucking stupid. I mean, they either, like, blatantly do things where you're just like, dude, what? It's kind of like when you're watching a you crime aren't even show trying. and they're touching something and they're not wearing gloves and you're like, ugh! You're, like, giving them hints. You're <laughs> like, what are you doing? Why aren't what you, are you wearing doing? gloves? Gloves. And then you're, like, gloves. stressing out, pulling out your hair and screaming at the TV and you're like, I could have done this better than you. Yeah, I would be <laughs> Way better at this than you. You're leaving evidence everywhere, dude. Like, what are you doing? Everywhere. This is terrible. This is unacceptable. So, anyway, after six days, Bundy did go back to jail. Um, But he just wasn't having it. He was not content with staying put. Uh, You know, he wasn't going to be in jail. That just wasn't going to happen. So, again, he started planning his escape. Uh, he ended up obtaining a floor plan of the jail, a hacksaw blade, $500 in cash that was smuggled in by uh, none other than Carol Ann Booth. Remember, remember I think it's actually Boone. Is it Boone or I Boone? I think it's Boone. Boone? Boone? Carol Ann Boone. Boone. You're right. It is Boone. Boone. Sorry, guys. B-O-O-N-E. <laughs> Carol Ann Boone. Apologies. 
Um, at night, when prisoners showered, Ted would saw a one-foot hole into the ceiling of the cell. Um, now, there actually were apparently later reports of people hearing things, but they went completely unwarranted. They're just rats. Really big rats. An actual full-size man stumbling around in the ceiling. It's just rats. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Full-size man rat. I feel like it should have at least been looked at. I feel like a lot of this could have been prevented. Guys, there's so much where it's like, I I, I just can't even. And actually, they even said that on documentary. The guy was like. A lot of this could have a been prevented. Both especially of his when escapes jumped, could have been prevented. He jumped out of the window. I exactly. Mean, like, there's just... I'm still trying to figure out a murder suspect, and you're just like, yeah, just willy-nilly, wander around, do whatever Go on. You want. Go on. You're fine. Do your thing. YOLO. Whatever. Um, so, on December 30th, 1977, the second escape attempt. Uh, most of the jail staff was on Christmas break during this time, so he had climbed through that tiny crawl space that he... Uh, carved that was only one foot he uh in six months lost 35 pounds so he was planning this he knew he was going to get himself tiny enough that he could squeeze through this opening um he was able to climb through the ceiling of the chief jailer's apartment he stole some of his street clothes and walked right out the front door a free man um, he later stole a car that broke down. A passing driver gave him a ride 60 miles away. From there, he caught a bus to Denver and then a flight to Chicago. 17 hours later, on December 31st, he was finally discovered that he had escaped the uh, Glenwood Springs Jail in Colorado. I think it's a little late. I mean, that's took them that long, guys. He made it all the way to freaking Chicago, too. He stole a car. <laughs> Hop the bus and a flight all in this time. I mean, that's just, that's, yeah, it's beyond me. So from Chicago, he, uh, I don't know why I thought this was funny. Like a little side note, Ted was a college football fan. He traveled from Chicago to Ann Arbor, Michigan on January 1st, or January 2nd, rather, 1978. He decided to watch the Rose Bowl at a local bar because his alma mater, the University of Washington, actually ended up beating Michigan, uh, which the University of Michigan is in in Ann Arbor. So uh, his alma mater beat Michigan in the Rose Bowl that year. So he just had to watch that before he made his way down to Florida. Um, on January 7th, he drove to Atlanta, boarded a bus, and then ended up in Tallahassee. Uh, so this is kind of like the the end of the murders here once he gets down into Florida. Uh, he rented a room at a boarding house under an assumed name. It was near the Florida State University. Um, after he was unable to gain legitimate employment because he would have had to show an ID and that would have ultimately given up his ruse, he reverted back to stealing credit cards and purses. Um, so, like I said, guys, these are the final murders that he commits once he gets down to Florida. Um, this is what we actually went over, uh, last week with the Chi Omega murders in 1978. Yeah. Because this, this is the year, this is the year it happened. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really go into a lot of detail at the time about the murders, but, um, Again, guys, this was January 15th, 1978, the Chi Omega Sorority House, which was on the campus of Florida State University. That night, 
He uh, bludgeoned to death 21-year-old Margaret Bauman. Um, He also choked her with a nylon stocking. Um, And then he entered the room of 20-year-old Lisa Levy, where he also bludgeoned and strangled her. Uh, He actually tore off one of her nipples, sexually assaulted her with a hairspray bottle, and bit into her left butt cheek. Can we can we talk about that for a minute? How much rage are you in where you rip somebody's nipple off? Yeah. Like what? Good God in heaven! Like, still think really, this guy's hot? When you really sit down and think about what happened to these girls, this it, is why I wanted to go into detail, guys. This is why I wanted to go into detail. Because I am really getting sick and tired, and that's why I full disclosure at the start of this, I'm really getting sick and tired of people saying that he's being glorified. This is not someone that needs to be glorified. And he's, I don't think he's being glorified either. He did horrible things. It's people, I don't think the movie's glorifying him. I don't think the documentary is glorifying him. I think these are people out there that think they're being funny by saying, oh my God, he's so hot. Oh my God, look how dreamy he is. This is why I wanted to make a point of when I did this podcast that I wanted to go in depth as much as I possibly could to what he actually did to his victims. The youngest one that we know of being 12 years old, guys. So, yeah. There were actually two 12 year olds. Yeah. We're coming up on another one here. Yeah. They're, they're sick person. Babies. Come on, guys. Babies. Yeah, sick person, guys. So, um, that was the, uh, again, going back to biting her in the left butt cheek, this is actually a side note. So, that bite was evidence used against him later in trial. There were dental impressions that were taking that matched. He bit so hard into her left butt cheek, guys. That it actually left a dental impression. Again. Like Did Casper he said. twice? It was in the same area though. Yeah. Right. It's in the same area. Right. But it was two, two distinct bites in the same area. But I mean hard and deep and dark enough that it was able to leave that much of an impression. So again, like you said, what kind of rage does it take to do something like that? I mean, that is unreal. That's unreal. Much less tearing off a nipple. Yeah. Or tearing a Like, Jesus Christ. So, legit, I I'd was, like, like keep hurting. Mine intact, thank I was, you. like, hurting when I read that part, guys. Like, not even kidding. I was like, ow. Like, you know we're women. We don't want that to happen. No, Ooh, thank you. Cue Peter Griffin and Family Guy when he's like, ow. Ow. I'm going to keep my nipples intact. <laughs> thank you. want my nipple. Keep my nipple. Hashtag keep the nipple. Um, I'm sorry. That hashtag. I swear to God, if you guys put that on Twitter, it's going to be... Someone's going to do it. Someone's going to do hashtag keep... Somebody's going to hashtag Ted Bundy. Hashtag keep the nipple. Good Lord. It's going to get out there. Um, So in the same sorority house, he went to... um, see her name was Kathy Kleiner she was 21 years old she lived through her attack but he broke her jaw and lacerated her shoulder um also Karen Chandler who lived through the attack was 20 years old 20 years old she was the one that we mentioned um 
Oh, no, I'm sorry. She was not the dancer. Uh, she ended up having a broken jaw, concussion, and missing teeth as well. So, uh, Bauman, Levy, Kleiner, and Chandler were all in the sorority house. Bauman and Levy were murdered. Kleiner and Chandler were assaulted. Um, it was a woman named Cheryl Thomas who was 21 years old. He dislocated her shoulder, fractured her jaw and her skull, and left her with permanent deafness. So she was the one that was a dancer that ultimately had to quit her career because of the injuries that she sustained from that assault. Um, so he ended up, uh, she did not live on the, in the, uh, Chi Omega house, by the way, she actually lived in an apartment complex that was eight blocks away, but it was still on the, uh, Florida State University campus. So, um, Later on, there were three weeks, actually exactly three weeks after these murders on February 8th, he drove to Jacksonville, Florida in a stolen van from the Florida State University campus. And on February 9th of 1978, he abducted Kimberly Leach. Again, like we mentioned, this was another 12-year-old baby from her school in Lake City, Florida. Um, he strangled and raped her. And then her body was found seven weeks later in a park uh, 35 miles away from the city. So um, it actually took until, it wasn't very long, about six days later, he was in another, he loved his VW Beetles. Um, he was pulled over February 15th, 1978, uh, again for a traffic stop. We are at number three. Thank God, Ted. Okay. We are <laughs> another traffic stop. Um, again, very suspicious items found in his car. There were IDs from the students, disguises, stolen credit cards, all other kinds of things. And uh, this ultimately led to his arrest. Um, he ended up standing trial in Miami in June of 1979. And uh, this would have been for the Chi Omega murders and the assaults. Um, his public defender negotiated a plea deal for him. Originally, he was to plead guilty in exchange for a 75-year sentence. So this would have been able to ultimately avoid the death penalty for him and even possibly, you know, have an appeal at some point if he was ultimately seemed unfit to stay in trial. Because there was a lot brought into question about Ted Bundy's mental state which was something that, you know, he was interviewed by psychiatrists and psychologists and he just scoffed him off. Again, he was too smart. He knew everything. Which I kind of want to bring up a part where, you know, they even said in the documentaries where people are deeming him as just purely evil. I want to point out that he was a very mentally sick man. Um, he was actually a looked at by a psych psychologist and she believed him to have bipolar and I truly believe that he if you just go back and just look at his his outbursts and his like he had manic depression he had manic outbursts he he was literally the textbook definition of a manic bipolar oh yeah Liz would describe episodes that he would have that so I just want to say yeah. I do not truly believe that he was legitimately evil i think he was just very mentally ill and did not want help he wouldn't get help um he was obviously like everything else he was a narcissist he was a pathological liar he was a psychopath but 
he was sick. He was very sick. And mental mental health is very important in keeping, you know, making sure that you're living a good life and that you're okay. And he wasn't getting help for it. He was just completely not medicated and just going off on his I think a lot of that had to do, too, I think going back to what we were talking about, about being a product of incest. I mean... That could have been a huge part of it. Guys, there are reports of known mental illness in people who are products of incest. You know, that code is all fucked up, so... He had all kinds of mental illnesses, but that was, I feel like, his most predominant predominant one was bipolar. Narcissistic disorder, bipolar disorder. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So I just wanted to very bring that up, so. that I don't think he was evil. I think he was just very ill. I very, it, very mentally ill. I think his actions yes. were evil. Absolutely. 100%. By far. But him as a person, it, you know, he was too smart, and he knew right from wrong. If he, I believe, if, honestly, if he would have gotten help from the start, who knows? Right. Who you knows? don't know. But I think there would have at least been a chance. But again, guys, we're living in a time frame. He was born in 1946. These were committed in the 70s. Times were so much different then than they are now. Very much little was known in the FBI criminal profiling at that time. So and it, I am this absolutely, all came into play later. So. I am absolutely not saying that I thought his stuff, what he did was evil. Because it was 100%. I'm just saying as a person. Oh yeah, he definitely was not That evil he person. wasn't evil. He was just very mentally ill. But actions by far. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. Just a side note there for you. So um, that plea deal at the last minute, Bundy refused. Um, he in pleading guilty would ultimately have to admit guilt. And again, being the narcissist and having the inferiority complex that he did, he was not going to admit admit weakness. He was not going to admit fault. So he decided to uh, renege on the plea deal and take it to trial. So uh, it did go to trial. Uh, One of the biggest, most damning pieces of evidence against him, again, was that bite mark that was found on uh, Levy or Levy. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, They took dental impressions. The dental impressions matched the bite mark. And um, along with other evidence, he was ultimately convicted on July 24th, 1979, Uh, Did not take the jury long to deliberate, and he was ultimately found guilty of two murders, uh, three attempted murders, and uh, two burglaries, and he was sentenced to death. Um, I wanted to go back to that evil comment that you made. So the judge in that Chai Omega case, or Kai Omega case, rather, his name was Edward Cowart, or Co, yeah, I believe Cowart, and um, he had a really amazing, really amazing remarks to say to Ted Bundy um, during his post-sentencing remarks, Um, and I wanted to read them to you, and actually part of these remarks is ultimately what was used in the title for the movie that will be coming out about him. Um, He says, quote, the court finds that both of these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and that they were extremely wicked, shockingly evil, 
and vile, and that the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life. This court, independent of, but in agreement with, the advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant, Theodore Robert Bundy. It is ordered that you be put to death by a current of electricity sufficient to cause your immediate death and that the current be passed through your body until you are dead. Take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It is an utter tragedy for this court to see such a total waste of humanity that I think, as I've experienced in this courtroom, you're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer, and I would have loved to have you practice in front of me. But you went another way, partner. I don't feel any animosity towards you, and I want you to know that. Unquote. Yeah, so even at that point, the judge really made a point of saying that he saw something enough in Ted to tell him that if you would have gotten help and maybe chosen a different path, you'd have made a great lawyer. I would have given you a recommendation. I would have loved to have seen you practice in front of me, but you went another way. And what you did was vile. And, you know, you need to take care of yourself. So... Yeah, that was pretty crazy. Um, he ended up standing trial again, this time in Orlando, Florida, six months later for the uh, murder of the 12-year-old young lady, Kimberly Leach. Um, he was found guilty of that murder, and on February 10th, 1980, he received his third death sentence. Um, now, prior to receiving that death sentence, Carol Ann Boone... Uh, Boone, sorry. Um, he proposed to her on the stand. So there was some like legal loophole that if you propose to someone on the stand that they're legally married and that, again, I think this was just a plot to, because I, he thought there, again, would have been a stay of execution. He was trying to tell the court, you know, you can't execute a married man. I just got married. You can't execute me. I think they were all like, yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. And <laughs> they did. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> and they did. Like I said, on February 10th, 1980, he received his third death sentence. He was found uh, guilty of the murder of Kimberly Leach. So um, he actually ended up spending about nine years on death row. Prior to that time, in October of 1981... Carol Ann Boone gave birth to a daughter named Rose, and she stated that Ted Bundy was the father. Now, I know there has been some uh, speculation over the years. I tend to believe that it's true. Um, Ted was denied conjugal visits because he was on death row, but it was known by inmates and even guards at that time that inmates would bribe guards and Basically, the guards would kind of look the other way so that these inmates could have intimate moments with female visitors. So uh, even by Carol Ann Boone's own testimony and interviews, it was stated that money was exchanged and her and Ted would have a quick moment alone. And apparently that ultimately uh, sired a young daughter named Rose in 1981. 
Um, it has been said by Anne Rule, again, the woman that wrote the biography about him. Apparently, she knows of or has seen his daughter, and she's a very well-put-together, beautiful young lady, and uh, I guess Carol Ann uh, divorced and left Ted, I don't have the exact date on that, guys, but she divorced and left Ted not long after that, I believe in 1982 or 1983. Um, so he never had any contact with her or Rose after that. But apparently, according to Anne Rule, she's a very well put together, young, lovely young lady, and her and Carol just kind of want to be left alone, which really I don't blame them at this point. I would not want any association with that man whatsoever. None at all. Um... In 1986, shortly after his first execution date was announced, Bundy started to confess. Um, not only to a few murders, but really more so, he started to confess to what he actually did to his victims. And I know we went over a little bit of this earlier, that he would change their clothes, he would wash their hair, he would put on makeup. Um, again, we talked about the necrophilia putrefication with the penetration we don't like yeah so um again he would also take polaroid pictures of his victims as well that was another thing a way of him keeping like a keepsake um so by december of 1988 when his final execution date was announced and all of his appeals by this time had been exhausted Bundy ultimately confessed to the full scope of his crimes. So this is when he started to name off up to 30. I think at one point there was 37 victims. He said total, even though, like we said, there were actually only 20 identified and five identified survivors between 1974 and 1978. But again, there's been estimates of even up to 100 women. We really don't have any idea. But, um... He confessed to necrophilia at that point. He confessed to decapitating at least 12 of his victims. Yes, because there were a lot of skulls found. He kept at least one group of severed heads that he had in his own apartment. Um, one of those heads he burned in Liz's fireplace at her house. And he said that was the home. one act she would never forgive him for. Well, no shit. I wouldn't forgive no motherfucker for burning somebody's head in my... In my oven? Why's it gotta be my oven? Why's it gotta be any of my Yeah, that's oven? true. Why's why it gotta be anybody's oven? Why you burn the heads, Don't sir? cut off no heads at all and burn them in <laughs> ovens. No. None of that. Bad Ted. Guys, bad Ted. Bad. So, uh, really, you know, it's not like Ted had this big change of heart and wanted to cleanse his soul, even though he did to a priest... Later, Yeah, apparently he renounced the whole LDS church and later identified as a Methodist before he died. And that's when he started cleansing his soul and saying that this was all porn's fault and all that garbage came out. But really why he started to confess was because he thought that they would grant him a stay of execution. He thought by confessing that he would have time to tell them where the bodies were and they wouldn't be so haste to hurry up and execute him. But they were like, no, dude, you, you got to go. It's like, time. it's been nine years. It was nine years. Guys, Although during those nine row. years, he did help with the 
uh, FBI profiling. He did. Look, if you guys remember the Green River. I mentioned Robert Keppel earlier on, Mm -hmm. one of the detectives that interviewed him, and uh, Robert Keppel did did lead the investigation. He's a detective from Washington State, and he did lead the investigation for the Gary Ridgway murders, the Green River killer murders, and he went to Ted, who helped in the profiling. Again, guys, this is someone that went to law school that has a psychology degree that worked in the criminal system. You know, he he was too fucking smart for his own goddamn good. Like, he was textbook gonna get away with it. This was just the kind of guy he was. So, um, there was no stay of execution. Um, his date did come. It was January 24th, 24th, 1989. Ted was only 42 years old. He was at the Florida State Prison in Bradford County, Florida. That morning, he had steak, eggs, and coffee for breakfast. Um, His final words, I believe, were he said he was sorry if he caused any trouble. And uh, he was executed by the electric chair. Apparently, it was the electric chair called Old Sparky. And it was one of the last executions that Old Sparky performed in Florida before she was retired to a museum in Texas. Um, And that was it. Uh, you can actually view his autopsy photos online, which is kind of weird at that time. They published them in a newspaper. Uh, Ted was, um, cremated and, uh, guys, if this wasn't the ultimate act of a really sick individual, he asked and was granted his ashes to be spread uh, in the Cascade Mountains, near Taylor Mountains, if you guys remember me mentioning Taylor Mountains, this is subsequently where most of his uh, victims' remains were found and where they still think victims' remains can be found if you believe that there were more than 30 victims, ultimately. so um, I do remember them saying, like, 30... I think the FBI came to him and said something like 36, and he said, add one more digit add to one that. Add one more. That's why add I said one 37. more digit to that, and you'll have it. I think ultimately it was probably more like 37. I think 37 was the number. I personally don't believe that the murder of the eight-year-old girl, Anne, when he was Anne Burr, Anne Marie Burr, I don't think that was him when he was 14. Um, Not really necessarily at that time, especially now that we know that the DNA evidence didn't match. But uh, I do think it was more likely that, you know, he just... I think he was just really sick and I think not only that culminated with the possibility of being, you know, a product of inbreeding or incest and that coming with mental illness, his distrust of women, his distrust of his own mother lying to him, this Diane Stephanie woman that he dated that dumped him. I just, you know, there were so many things that culminated into him doing what he did. And again, there's no excuse for it whatsoever, but it gives you a better idea as to why he did what he did. So, um, and again, guys, like I said, I wanted to go into detail. Not only did Casper and I discuss going into detail more about Ted's background to give you guys an idea of him, the type of person he was and the crimes that he committed, but also to make a point again of saying, uh, you people out there, you know, Netflix is having to release messages on their social media about people. Can you stop saying how hot Ted Bundy is like, stop, full stop. 
guys on all of this. You know, this was not, okay, physically attractive, charismatic, all of that aside. He brutally raped and murdered two 12-year-old girls. He raped a girl with a metal rod. He raped another woman with a hair spray bottle. He beat women to death. He cut off their heads. He raped their bodies to the point of putrefaction. He was a cheater. He this was this was a very sick sick, horrible individual that did a lot of evil, vile things. And in no way, shape, or form should he have then, and even more so now, been looked at anything but what he was, which was a sick, 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 twisted individual. Sick. And uh, again, like we stated before, and like even one of his victims that made the comment about the movie stated this needs to be a cautionary tale never judge a book by its cover guys. that cute Don't guy that cute guy smiling at you from the bar could be ted bundy guys just be careful just yeah. be weary be careful now we know we have one a little longer with this one than our other two but there's so much information on him and there's so much to tell about him we wanted to make sure that we fully covered from start to finish, his entire life. We knew this was going to go over an hour. Yeah, we guys. knew. So. Like, we had an idea. I think. <laughs> I think most of you knew. I think guy. I think people that wanted us to, you know, we didn't want to skim on this. We, no. We figured a lot of people were going to watch the documentary. We figure a lot of people are going to know who Ted Bundy is, but surprisingly, a lot of people don't. And even people who do know what he is, they really only know about the crimes. They don't know not only about his background. They don't know the victims. And like we said, we offer our most heartfelt condolences to the victims um, and to their families and to the survivors. And we hope that they are living their fullest life and that they're happy and healthy and that the families of the victims that he murdered, that they are in somewhat shape or form finding solace in, in, in dealing with their grief. So we do offer our condolences to them, of course. Absolutely. Well, on a different note. Um, yeah, have... that was a great one, guys. Thank you. I yes. Mean, <laughs> I was so exhausted after researching that, but I it, it got It got to me a little bit, you guys. I'm not going to lie. I was reading the in-depth what he did to those women, and it, it, it gets to you after some time. It's it kind of messes with your mind a little bit. It's fucked up. That's why we keep it light, guys. Yeah, like we, we try we, to keep it a little bit comedic it. through it. That way there's a little bit of laughter through it. That way you're not like, oh we my know god. This, guys, we know this shit gets heavy. This is yeah, it's very heavy. Breaks when we research it. That's why we want to laugh and make you guys laugh in the middle of it. Because we know shit will get heavy and you're like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm going to have to take a smoke break. <laughs> I don't know how much more of this I can take. This Someone's like, going to be like, pass the scotch, please. Fucking with me. <laughs> Janice, it's 1230. I don't care. Pass the scotch. <laughs> I'm listening to a podcast. So last week before we, um, I asked you guys to, some of you guys, if you wanted to a shout out or if you wanted to talk about how you felt about Bundy. Um, to message me on the, or comment on the Facebook post or the Twitter post. So we got some of those and I wanted to give some shout outs and go over what some of you guys said. 
So the first one I want to read is from one of my friends named Shauna. She writes, I only got to watch one episode last night. She's talking about the Netflix documentary. I'm going to be binging it tonight. However, Bundy has been my favorite serial killer since I learned about him. The fact he was so clean-cut, handsome, and well-spoken and still managed to completely rip women apart is so fascinating to me. He isn't what we picture when we think of serial killers. We have images of Manson, Gacy, or Eileen. We picture a visibly crazy or ill person. Learning about Ted made me realize we shouldn't immediately assume the nature of somebody simply by their appearance. He was such an ill individual but never showed it on the outside and I absolutely love reading about him. Side note, I have gotten to see the infamous car he used. It was amazing and chilling. She had mentioned and sent pictures of it. She went to the crime museum in Tennessee and got to see his car. Hashtag jelly. <laughs> I know. Just saying. We're probably going to be making a trip there at some point. So, I just agree. I, she literally just reiterated pretty much everything we said um, about how he didn't look like a killer necessarily, but he was still able to do all of the acts that he did. Um, our second comment is by one of my friends named Mackenzie. Um, she says, so I think he's absolutely fascinating. When I was watching the tapes, I kept thinking he has a very distinct mental, mental health issue, and I was curious as to why no one even saw it. I feel horrible for all the women that were killed, but I also feel bad for him because no one gave him the help he needed. If it was found earlier, maybe all of this could have been prevented. I think he isn't purely evil. He had issues that he needed help with, and he didn't get the help for it. After watching the tapes, I love him more, but not more than Dahmer. This is the girl that is going to be on our episode with us when we do the Dahmer episode. He's my favorite. He's her favorite. but And we both love Ted Bundy, but not... As much as we love Dahmer, so she had to throw that in there. <laughs> Dahmer's my my number twosies. He's my sloppy seconds, I guess. But she even kind of reiterated what I said, that he wasn't purely evil. He was just, he just had issues and he needed help. Very mentally ill. Sorry, my papers fell. <laughs> she just wanted to throw them all around. Sorry. It's like, we're done with the podcast. <laughs> throwing papers. We're not done yet, Sophia. Okay, I'm sorry. No, we're doing shout outs. Sorry. All right, anyway, so our next one comes from Carl. Um, These are actually from Twitter, so I'm going to say the Twitter uh, names as well. This is Brain of Blood, an amazing guy, by the way. Follow him if you don't. The biggest thing is how clean cut he was. Lots of women found him attractive. It's like, quote unquote, sin looking good on the outside, but you have consequences. Other killers looked creepy, to be honest, but a clean-cut boy next door can be a killer as well, and that, to me, is absolutely terrifying. So it's like when you think about not judging a book by its cover. So, I was saying, it's not always the creepy guy that's walking with a limp, it's the cute guy that lives in the apartment. Next to you. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, you don't know. Um, Our next one comes from Stephanie Fortson. Her tag is Stephanie Fortson. Um, I'm sure you've all seen Silence of the Lambs. I think they should have kept him alive and used him like they did Hannibal Lecter on cases and try to see what makes serial killers tick and what makes them and what makes some so hard to capture. Many have been of no use, but we'll never know. And this is kind of what we were going into on the Green River killer, how he actually did 
help with that, and he actually helped with the profiling of killers after that Gary because Ridgeway, yeah. they were basically diving into the mind of a serial killer for him to be able to help them find and profile. It's almost like a takes one no one kind of yeah. thing, especially when they're even at this time when those murders were happening, it was still kind of almost unknown. Right. Our next one comes from Horror Fan Ryan. His tag is Horror Fan Ryan. One thing about the Ted Bundy case is that he would not have gotten away with it for years if he did it now. They knew when he drove and his name, but they couldn't connect him immediately because they had to go through it all by hand. I think he kind of gets too much credit for being quote unquote smart. And this is actually something very smart to bring up. I wonder if this happened now, how long it would take. Well, and another thing that Ryan was pointing out too, which I love how he worded that, is there is a big difference between common sense and book smarts. So I just want to throw that out there. You know, Ted may have had the education and had the psychology degree and had the law training, but clearly we know he can't motherfucking drive. <laughs> one of the most simplest tasks. So literally one of the most like simplest things that you like, I'm going to need you as a grown adult to know how to do. He just, he's busting U-turns, running red lights, <laughs> swerving. I mean, like he just didn't know how to drive. Clearly didn't know how to drive. So, yeah, well, you know what they I mean, say. there's definitely people a common who, sense issue there. People Apparently people who are extremely intelligent lack common sense. Oh, yeah. I've heard that firmly, many times before. Firmly believe that. Mm-hmm. Firmly believe that. Yeah, for sure. And then I think there's still that kind of thing where, like, I think some killers, especially ones that are extremely narcissistic like Ted, again, I definitely, he definitely didn't want to get caught. I mean, he tried to escape twice. I think there were actually even, there were rumors, not not necessarily rumors, but I found this somewhere in my research too, that in 1986, while he was incarcerated before his execution in 89, there were hacksaw blades found. So he was even plotting to do another escape. Like, he did not want to be in jail. But there is this sense with a lot of killers, especially ones that are narcissistic, where they want credit. Yep. They kind of want to go down in infamy. They want you to know that this is what I did. Like, I don't want to pay the price for it. I don't want to be found guilty for it. I don't want to, you know, but I do want to, you know, if a book's going to be written about it, you better make sure my name, my name is there. Yep. Yeah. And that's, if anything, that's what Ted Bundy wanted, wanted. He wanted to be known. Our next one comes from Jan at JSU saying underscore 2018. He had a degree in psychology and was a master at manipulation. He was like a chameleon. He had characteristics changing from his appearance and quote unquote habits to full authorities. Bundy and John Wayne Gacy blended in as normal men by working in politics and public services. Bundy helped with the Green River Killer investigation, and then hearing, but hearing him speak in the third person was chilling. Thoughts from the killer himself, quote, weak serial killers are your sons, were your husbands, were everywhere, and there will be more of your children dead tomorrow, unquote. If that doesn't send chills up your spine, 
I don't know what will. Yeah. That's that's very chilling yeah, to me. Yeah, he def- he was one of the first to make the point of saying that it's not it's not the boogeyman with vampire teeth lurking in the shadows behind the bushes. No. It's your sons, it's your husbands, it's your brothers, it's That's crazy. Anybody and everybody. Um ooh, I'm just zoomed into that. The next one is from Let's Watch Horror Podcast at Watch Horror Pod. Um, another po- horror podcast, by the way, you guys. Uh, yeah, they're shout very, out to very those guys. awesome. I love them. Absolutely They've been a big love support them. of us, so we want to shout them out for sure. Huge, huge support, and they've been so sweet. And actually, to be honest with you, every single one of these people I've been reading. Um, Shauna, Mackenzie, Carl, Jan, Stephanie, all of you have been so supportive. Ryan, you guys have been so sweet, and I just want to sincerely thank each one of you, um, and the two that I'm about to bring up, Keelan and Mindy, you guys too. Um, but from Let's Watch Horror Podcast, um, hey guys, loving the podcast, just wanted to ask you a question. If Ted didn't become a serial killer and focus his charisma into a career, what do you think he would have ended up doing? I full wholeheartedly believe he would have been a lawyer. Oh, definitely, yeah. 100%. He would have excelled at that, too. I really that would have just like been it. his, yeah. That was like his niche. He, niche. He could have done it. And I think he would have been, he'd have been a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he's so manipulative. Yeah. He would have definitely been a prosecutor. Absolutely. He definitely would have been a prosecutor, yeah. Um, next comes from Keelan Barry at The Barry Burst. He is an author. He has some amazing books. I actually bought one and am reading one as of right now, and it's really good. Um, I definitely suggest looking him up. The Barry Burst. Check out his stuff. He's cool. Serial killers like Bundy give me a lot of inspiration for my work. I like to say that when the horrors of real life are so extreme, why compete? Just take it and use it. You'll see similarities between Bundy and the killer in my short story, Cannibal, and my book, Slasher. But I'm no expert, and I'm looking forward to listening to this and learning some new information. Um, He also said his escapes were especially interesting. I think that's probably the most terrifying aspect of all of this, is when someone like that breaks free. Again, something I've taken and used. Also, it's very Halloween-esque of him to do that. Isn't it strange that Myers and Bundy both escaped in the same year? That one was good. I liked that. Because that was 1978 when Halloween came out and Michael Myers escaped the same year. Well, and I know um, this might be a good place to... Did we have any more shout-outs after Just that? one more. Or, okay. Um, because I wanted to make a point of saying, like, we're definitely going to, at some point, do a uh, podcast on, which I think this would be a great idea. You know, the late 70s is when we really saw a boom in horror movies. I mean, that's really when it started coming out. You know, you had... Halloween, you had the original, so like 1978, 1979, so, you know, there were a lot of, but then prior to that in the 70s, and this is even something that's mentioned in the very beginning of the the Ted Bundy documentary, is how, and we even touched a little bit of it on our second podcast in 1978, 
about a lot of really crazy things that happened in the 70s. The Hillside Strangler murders, the uh, Son of Sam murders. Like, there were some really jacked up shit going on in that decade. And I think a lot of it contributed to this huge rise in horror movies in the late 70s. I really do. I distinctly do. So I thought, hey, bravo to them for that. Comparison. Yeah, thank you very much for that, that Keelan. When awesome. he brought that up, I was like, oh my god, that was the same yeah, year. I loved that. That was perfect. <laughs> that was a really good one. Very, very, very good observation. Um, our last one comes from Mindy at Bright Manite. M-A-N-I-T-E. If I'm pronouncing that wrong, hun, i I'm really sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. She says, as someone else stated, I don't think he would have gotten away with it for so long had it happened today. Was he that smart then? Perhaps not. Sort of left a bit of evidence behind, like in the car and biting that one girl. But at the same time, he thought he was innocent, so it sort of makes sense. It's all extremely tragic, but fascinating. Also, I'm sorry for rambling, but also a question. If either one of you could sit face-to-face face-to-face with someone like him and ask questions, would you? Absolutely. Oh, I wanted to be a criminal psychologist, so yeah. If I could actually sit down and have a face-to-face conversation with Jeffrey Dahmer, I'd be like, sign me Mm -hmm. up. That was what I wanted to do. Right. I mean, that that was going to be, that was something that I wanted to be my career. Because, again, like we said, you know, we, their acts were evil. What Ted Bundy did was evil, but we don't think, I think it's just too simple to just identify someone as an evil, quote unquote, evil person. Right. No, there's, there's, there's so many back things behind it that drive someone to do it. That, that makes them who they are. Sorry if you guys heard a weird vibration. Yeah, I apologize. I didn't realize that was about to happen. That's okay. That was my fault. I, like, felt it, and I was like, <laughs> people are probably going to be like, what the fuck was that? I really do apologize for that. I, I turned something off, and I didn't realize it Unless was you guys vibrate. didn't hear it, and then, like, We never, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> never mind that. I'm losing it. Anyway, so... <laughs> So we hope you guys appreciated this Bundy episode as we have. Yeah, this guy, this was awesome, guys. We know, we know this was a long one. We know this was a couple hours, but, uh, we just had a lot of content that we wanted to put in there. We definitely wanted to give you guys our quick intro. We wanted to announce the music coming, which we are so, 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 so super excited about. I will give you guys guys another hint. Um, and then of course, again, like we said, we wanted to go real in depth and hard in on Bundy, especially with the documentary and movie coming out. And then of course, wanted to give our shout outs to all of our supporters. So thank you you guys are awesome. Thanks for your comments. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your everything. Yeah. (laughs) There's, I don't even know. It's, it's still surreal to me sometimes to go back and re-listen to the podcast and be like, that's my voice. Yep. (laughs) That's me listening to me. But I want to give you guys one more hint on the music just because we love this guy. His name is Peter Gundry. Not going to tell you the song. Just look him up. Yep. Just look him up. Listen to a bunch of his music. He's incredible. You guys are going to love his stuff. Yep. It's amazing. Make sure to listen to his gothic stuff, his dark stuff, his witch, his witch stuff. Um, all of it's just incredible. I do a lot of my meditations to his music. So as an eclectic. So it's just, yeah, it's just great music to meditate to. And 
last but not least, next week. Yeah, guys, we got to tell you what's going on next week. This is this is a topic that both of us are really excited about, but uh, Casper knows a lot more in depth about it. So, kind of how this week I kind of took the reins with Bundy, she's gonna kind of take the reins, but I'll pop in. But this is definitely one we are both so excited about. We wanted to keep the real trail kind of going for a minute. But we want to kind of go into the paranormal aspect of things. Um, This is probably going to be a controversial episode because people don't believe that the Warrens were legit. But we are going to talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren. And I am very, very passionate about this couple. Very passionate. I love them. I love everything they stand for. I believe them fully, 100% with everything in me about everything they did. Um... And that's what we're going to cover next week. We're going to talk about Ed Lorraine Warren. And this isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea. I understand that. I understand some of you don't believe in the, you know, what they did. This might not be an episode for you because me and Be- Becky fully, fully believe in them. Yeah. So. Guys, there's just too much. You know, there's a lot out there that can be explained and there's a lot out there that can't. And if you familiarize yourself with Ed and Lorraine, specifically with Ed and his book, The Demonologist, that we'll discuss. I unfortunately have not read it, but I will very, very, very soon. Casper has. Um, this man knew his stuff, and he went in-depth in detail. And anybody who's had themselves any type of demonic or paranormal experiences will know firsthand that... What I went through was unexplained, and what I went through is exactly what Ed Warren is describing. So, we we both knew and talked about that this was going to be a controversial one that a lot of people may not agree, but we hope that you'll at least have an open mind if you do decide to listen and, you know, take away some information if you ultimately decide to disagree, but... Just, and if just you have do, an it's open okay. mind, guys. We're fine. Yeah. We're fine. We don't, we're people, we're human. This is what we do. We don't have to agree on everything, but as long as you can have an open mind, we can at least appreciate that. So. Absolutely. But we are excited about it, guys. We, we can't <laughs> very, to, very we excited. We wait to bring it to you. And uh, I'm sorry if I stumbled over a few words, guys. I have had a crazy day and week, and this has been an exhausting topic, but I loved bringing it to you guys, and I really hope you appreciated it. And, uh, Thank you again for all your love and support. Yep. Thank you very much, guys. And next week we'll have an out song as well. (laughs) So. Dun, dun, dun. It won't be that. I promise. Actually, I think we should make it that. Really? I don't. (laughs) That was. It was beautiful. I'm sorry. I would play it. I would play it over and over. (laughs) No. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. All right, guys. Peace.